You see in your sermon outline that we're in part two. The theme continues from last week. So last week we dealt with one woman and her faith, and this week we're going to deal with a different aspect of faith, and we'll unfold that more as we go. But we're going to up the ante from last week. From faith in the face of a shameful, debilitating condition to faith in the face of death. And the thing about death is death shows no partiality. Death is batting a thousand. Death always gets his man, so to speak. And so when they or we or people in our culture encounter death, there's a very sobering reality that this is it, this is the end. Everyone everywhere is trying to deal with the problem of death. And everyone everywhere has some sort of fear of death. And if you just look around in our culture, we are obsessed with products and processes and systems to try to prolong life as much as possible so that we won't die. There is this inherent uh, fear within us, but also God is built within us self-preservation. And we want to continue in that. And then the thing is, every religion on the face of the earth wants to address the issue of death. Because it's inevitable. And what happens after death? And everyone has their idea. And that's why the message of death is so prevalent within the gospel. And the theme of resurrection is so central to our faith. Because this is what separates us from everyone else. How can we have hope in a resurrection? Because we serve a resurrected Christ. We are people of resurrection. If you are in Christ, you know what it means to go from death to life. You are ministers of that, res- that uh, resurrection. Let's go into 2 Corinthians 5. And ministers of the reconciliation that comes through Christ's resurrection. This is who we are. This is, this is our identity as people on the other side of the grave. And so when we look at the grave, it isn't before us, it is behind us because Christ came out of the grave. And so we're going to deal with some of those feelings and fears that come with death and how we should view death. And what I love about this passage, as like last week, last week we dealt with the themes of, of blood and atonement and forgiveness. This week we, we deal with the gospel-centric themes of death and resurrection, and the restorative power that we ultimately see on the cross. Because the view of death for the Christian is like no other. No one else anywhere else. And the central, uh, the, the central command in this text is a universal one. Do not fear, only believe. And we're going to flesh that out more. So last week we looked at wholeness uh, through hearing. And um, wholeness and healing through, uh, through, through faith. And then this week we're going to see a different aspect of faith. We're going to see faith as supplication. Because his petition is not for himself. His, his humble prayer is not for his, his own disease, but he sets himself aside for the sake of his daughter. And as we talked about a little bit last week, we have two women in this chapter who could not be more different. A woman with 12 years of blood who is ostracized from society cannot even feel the, the, the touch of another person. To a woman who is growing up in, in the house of, of privilege within Jewish society. A daughter of the ruler of the synagogue. It gets no higher in Jewish society. And a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, it gets no lower in Jewish society. And these two women have nothing in common other than being powerless. Nothing in common other than having no hope in human means. Only hope through faith in Christ. And so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And so to continue our Oreo analogy, last week we went to the middle, ate the cream. Now we got to get to the cookies. Jerry thought that was really funny and brought Oreos over the house, which was completely, which was completely appropriate. But now there are these little gremlins in the pantry all week, like, eat me, eat me. And so... I, I appreciate it. Just don't bring me Oreos anymore. Um, so let's get into Mark chapter 5. So Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. So again, we're going to look at the first four verses 
And then we're going to look at the, the last several verses. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be alive, made well, and live. And he went again with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So we know from last week, Jesus healed the woman with the flow of blood. Picking up in verse 34, And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what she said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion and people weeping and wailing. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your people. Those of us who know you, who are in Christ, we know the words, arise, come to me. We know that we serve a God who is not afraid of death. A God whose power even reigns over death. A God of resurrection and new life. A God who took on flesh that He may live a life perfect that we could never live and die the death that we deserved. Rise again to new life that we may have new life in Him. We praise You, Lord, as the God of new life. A God who is faithful. And in your faithfulness, we can trust you and walk in faith. In the light of the resurrection of the Son. And the power and the preservation of the Spirit. To the glory and honor of the Father. Lord, we love you and we praise you. Pray that your word would search us challenge us, lead us, leave us naked and exposed, that we may grow into your image and take every thought captive to Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So picking up in verse 21. So getting back to Jesus's travels around the Sea of Galilee, as we saw a few weeks ago, he wanted to get away from the crowds. So he went to the other side and uh, cast out the demons, and now he's coming back, and he's back in Capernaum, kind of his home base, and everyone's waiting for him to come, and as soon as he steps out of the boat, the crowds arise again, and so that's where we are. We're picking up in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And so I think it's important to understand what the ruler of the synagogue is. And so he kind of had an all-encompassing position. He was probably a lay leader, not often a priest, potentially a scribe, but he was what we would consider a trustee. So he would be in charge of, uh, of coordinating the worship service, picking out the readings, uh, inviting those to come and speak. He would make sure that the, the scrolls were protected. He would make sure that the facilities were, were, were clean. He would organize all of the moving pieces so that when everyone, when all the, the, the men came to worship, then everything would be organized. And so he has a very important position. Every Sabbath, he would be in charge of, of how the observant Jews would go before the Lord. And, and so 
This is a very important man. And and so for a, a ruler of the synagogue to fall down before anyone is something that would have struck the readers and those who viewed it in awe. This man, Jairus, seeing him, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and he implored him earnestly saying, now it's been a while since it's been a few weeks, but he implored earnestly. It's another way of saying begging, pleading. This chapter has been a chapter of begging so far. We saw the demons begging in verse 10. The demon legion begs Jesus not to send him out of the country. And then he begs again in verse 12, send me into the pigs pleading with Jesus because he knows that Jesus has the authority. Then we see down in verse 17 that the pig herders, the herdsmen, they're pleading with Jesus. Depart from the region. They're begging him. You have disrupted our economy. You are too much for us. Leave. And then the beautiful begging of the man who had once been demon-possessed, who's now in his right mind, fully clothed, standing before Jesus, begging him to stay with him. Every one of these people beg him because of his power, because they know they have no other opportunity. Where else would we go? And this man, this dignified ruler, is on his knees imploring him greatly, begging him. My little daughter, my little girl. The reason I've titled these Daughter of Faith, in both passages you see the word daughter. And last week, Jesus affectionately calls the woman who reaches out in faith, daughter. And here, the father affectionately says, my little girl, my daughter, is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Now last week, we saw the faith of the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Now we're going to see the faith of a man for his 12-year-old daughter. Look at the faith in this statement. This is an observant Jew who comes before Jesus in a way that probably all all his other synagogue members would have scoffed at. Look at the faith in this statement. Come. His faith, knowing that the presence of Jesus will change things. First of all, we have to see his posture. He's on his knees. He's on his face. Come. Knows that Jesus being in his home is what is needed. Lay your hands on her. He appeals to his presence and his power. Even before the woman touches his garment to be healed, he knows that there is, some, there is power that comes from Jesus himself. Come to my home. Lay your hands on her. So that purpose, I need you to come and lay your hands so that there is no wavering in his voice, so that she may be made well and live, so she may have peace. We talk often about the Jewish concept of shalom, wholeness, lacking nothing. She may be made well and live. If you bring your presence with your power for the purpose of her peace, I know it will be accomplished. There is so much wisdom and confidence in this father's statement. And it is a great faith. And so one thing we notice is that Jesus often does not do what the disciples ask. Well, why don't we do this? Or why don't we go over here? And Jesus does not let them. Jesus' steps are determined. But he listens when those cry out in faith. Jesus, in his divinity, knew that he was going to go and heal this, this, this woman. But he welcomes a faithful interruption. And so... That's where we find ourselves. But before we move on, I want us to think about something here that's, that's important in this. As we think about death, and as we, we, last week we, we talked about the fall, it's important for us to see here that the curse of the fall shows no partiality. Even the rich man and his daughter is affected by sin and death prematurely. I think so many of us so often believe the lie that money changes things. That if you have a certain status or you have, a, you have enough money, it makes you immune from the problems of the world. I shake my head how many times I've heard Christians say this. Well, 
this person has all this money, why would they do that? Or this person has this job or this status, what would do that? Do we think, we, we live in, in a culture where everyone's, especially public figures' lives are on display. You think addiction and depression and suicide and cancer, the, the, the rich and the, the powerful and the notable are exempt from those things? Of course not. But how often do we justify in our minds that if I had more money, if I was in a better position, if I was in a better place, then maybe somehow my life would be better. Or I, I would be insulated from the effects of the curse. It's not true. These instances are here to remind us that everyone needs a Savior. That everyone is affected by the fall. And the noblest of noble will be brought low on their face before Jesus. Either in submission or subjection. And this is what he does. Having no other hope, he goes before the great physician, crying out in faith, just like the shamed woman with the flow of blood. There they become equal at the foot of the Savior. Mark draws this parallel intentionally. We see both of them fall down. We see two women here. Mark is teaching us in, in, in the details that he uses. Both are desperate for deliverance. And both must, must act in faith. So, moving through the account of the woman being healed that we looked at last week. He says these beautiful words, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Straight to the point. Great bedside manner, right? This father is pleading with Jesus. And they come up, hey, he's dead, end of, or she's dead, end of story. You wonder when he hears those words, what is going through his mind? Jesus, if you wouldn't have stopped for this other woman, maybe we would have made it home in time. Everything that is going through his mind, my little girl, she's dead. And Jesus knows this. But before we get to that, I want to I address what they say. Your daughter's dead. What is their next response? That's, that, that, that's legitimate. They're, they're messengers. They're bringing facts. But now how do they respond after that? Why trouble the teacher any further? Why trouble the teacher any further? They grossly underestimate who Jesus is. Because if he is just simply a teacher, then death is too much for him. Don't bother him. That's it. And this is, this is key to this passage. And this is key in the Gospel of Mark, all the Gospels, but in the Gospel of Mark especially, because Mark's thesis statement, Mark 1.1, the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary teacher. And this is the same grave mistake so many people make. Why is it crucial that we understand who Jesus is? Why is it crucial that he is fully man, fully God? Why is it not enough that he's just a good rabbi? Why is, he not enough, why is it not enough that he just says nice sayings and does nice things to people? Because if he's just a nice man who says nice things, then he has no power. He is impotent. Then we shouldn't bother him. And he's powerless, especially over death. Because if death is too great for him, and he would have never risen from the grave, and death is too great for us, we have no hope. We have no security if he is just a teacher. If he is just a good teacher, there is no good news. No real effect on your life and nothing special about Christianity. But thank God that is not true. I thank God that he has revealed it to us. And in his scriptures we see again and again his power over all things, even death. And Jesus, Jesus beautifully here in verse 36, but overhearing what they said, this, this word in the Greek, some of the translations will say uh, ignoring or disregarding. It has both of those senses. He hears them, but he doesn't pay them any attention. He disregards what they're saying because he knows what their, their motivation is, but he speaks to the man who matters. Notice he doesn't respond to the messengers. He doesn't try to re refute them. He hears them, and he says directly 
to the ruler. Do not fear, only believe. He didn't speak to the skeptics. He speaks to the man of faith. Now he implores him. You are imploring me to come to your house. I am imploring you. Believe in faith. Do not fear. This is a comprehensive two-part command. It sums up what God requires of his people. We looked at this a few weeks ago. What is the most common command in all of Scripture? Fear not. Do not fear. We are fearful people. Do not fear. Only believe. Fear not and trust in the Lord. Do not fear is the first part of it. Of course he's afraid. He's crying out to Jesus. He he throws all his dignity behind him and comes down on his face in the dust. Jesus, come to my house and save my daughter. And we saw everything that he implores Jesus back in verse 23. My little girl, my daughter's at the point of death. Come now and lay your hand on her so that she may be alive and live. He's heartbroken. And he has no hope if Jesus is only just a teacher. The first part of his fear not. The second is only believe. Now, the word believe is the, the, the same it's a verb form of the noun for faith. So it is, it is faith as an action. This is not just, Jesus doesn't say in, in, in the Greek, Jesus doesn't just say, believe one time, say a prayer, walk an aisle, go home. Keep believing. This is a continual belief. This is a belief that is, that is secure and, that, and it continues. It's not a mere one-time acknowledgement. And the great connection with our message last week, Sola fide. By faith alone. He has no other option. And he has no better option either. Do not fear, only believe. Put your faith in me. And I can just imagine Jesus intently locking eyes with him. And drawing him in. Don't listen to everything else. Keep your eyes on me. What's beautiful about this is his This is not a selfish faith for himself. It is for his daughter. He is interceding for her. He is bringing supplications before God on her behalf. In the midst of the entire situation, his sick daughter, now dead, and in his mind, is he believing the reports? Is he believing the doubters or does he believe Christ? Hebrews 11.1, which we should all have memorized. But this is exactly what faith is. The assurance, and it'll be up on the screen, you should know it, but the the assurance things hope for, the conviction of things not seen, this is putting it into practice. He is hoping that his daughter will be saved by the Savior. He is convicted in what he cannot see. Does he trust the Savior or does he trust his ears and his eyes? Because if he trusts his circumstances, he has no hope. If he trusts the messengers, which he believes, is he acting in faith. And this is what faith faces. Because the world loves to challenge us. The skeptics love to challenge us. Will you believe the doubters? Will you believe the, those who say you have no reason for faith? You can't trust Jesus. He's just a good teacher. The Bible is outdated. Do you believe the skeptics? Or do you have conviction and assurance in what you have not seen? You have not seen him, yet you know him. Will you listen to the skeptics? Will you, will you, will you believe your, your eyes? How often have our eyes deceived us? Right in front of us gives us no reason for hope. Everything that I can see and feel right now feels overwhelming. I don't know if I can have faith. I don't know if I can trust Jesus because it seems like everything is against me. This is what faith is. How does this man respond? We don't really know, but he goes along. He goes along with Jesus. But how do we respond? When our faith is challenged, when people challenge our faith, or our, our, our eyes challenge our faith. But they move on. And he, Jesus, allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. So I think it's a good time to talk about Jesus' discipleship model. So if you remember, there's a large crowd around them. We don't know how many, but a lot of people. 
In those days, you didn't get a lot of entertainment. If Jesus shows up and starts healing people, everybody's coming out of their houses. And so the disciples are with him, probably the 12, probably others, and the crowd as well coming just to see the spectacle. Jesus' discipleship model is a great, is a great uh, model for us. Because everywhere he went, crowds followed him. But what did he do? He invested in 12. There were the uh, periphery, you know, he sent out the 72. But among the 12, he invested in three. Jesus was not concerned with masses. It was quality over quantity. And he brings these three with him when he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration and he stands before Moses and Elijah. He brings them to the Mount of Gethsemane when he goes to pray before he approaches the cross. These three, as we have seen, if you were with us, we went through John, these three knuckleheads. John paints himself in a very beautiful light. But you've got Peter, the bold, open mouth, insert foot leader, Peter. You've got John who beats Peter in the foot race and leans on Jesus' breast, the, 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 the beloved who's close to him. And James we don't hear much about. But James is the first martyr from among the apostles. If you look in Acts 12, his head is cut off by Herod. Jesus brings these three men, brings them into his close confidence, and knows and has wisdom on, on, on who can perceive these things. And so maybe he didn't want to overwhelm the, the, the leader's house with, his whole, with the whole uh, throng that was behind him. But I think there's intentionality here. Jesus brings those with potential, those who he's getting ready to set up to lead his people. He gives them insight that he doesn't give to everyone else. This is God gives in measure of faith, as Paul tells us in Romans 12. And this is what is happening. He's bringing these, these three men. There's nothing in themselves, but he brings them into the home. And, and when he enters, he says to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? And the child is not dead, but sleeping. So, in... Oh, sorry, I skipped verse 38. They came to the house of the ruler of, synagogue, of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So, I think this is important to explain. Um, they didn't mourn the way we would mourn. They didn't have funerals the way we have funerals. Our funerals are, are nothing compared to theirs. Seven days of, um, it's funny to read old commentaries because they think, say things like a hubbub and, uh, you know, just, there was, there, was, there was commotion. So much so that you could be a professional mourner. There was a mourner's guild that you could belong to that when someone died, you were hired to come and cry for a week straight. Uh, there were, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What, what kind of job is that? Just waiting around for someone to die and you cover yourself in sackcloth and ashes and, and cry for a week straight. Some of the, the, the Jewish history said this was so important that even the, the, the poorest person would, would hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. This guy is the ruler of the synagogue. Imagine the commotion he has. So I, I want you to get a picture of this. Jeremiah 9. As... Jeremiah is weeping for the state of his people. And when he talks about their idolatry, and that they do not trust in the Lord, this is what God tells him to tell the people to describe what God is feeling about his people. Jeremiah 9, uh, picking verse 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Not just any mourning women. Send for the skillful women to come, the really good criers. Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears. They are not worship leaders. They are, they are agony leaders. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined we are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O woman, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament. This is something that they passed on to their daughters. And each to his neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off all the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, 
Thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. The reminder of these weeping, wailing women is the agony of the curse, of God's people and things not being how they should be. Oppression and sin and death and disease should cause us to mourn. That's why these professional mourners were here. And so this was a tradition within Hebrew culture. Matthew tells us that there's flute players and there's a great, great commotion. We don't know how many, but it was probably a lot. And so Jesus moves from one crowd to another. This crowd is in and around this man's home. Then we get in verse 39, and when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. I imagine to professional mourners who've seen their share of death, how would these words sound? Now, if you listen to skeptics and those who try to pick the Bible apart, they try to explain this away. Well, she wasn't really dead. Uh, she, was just, she was actually speaking. Many people try to explain this like it's a Monty Python skit. Anyone ever seen uh, the, the Holy Grail. It is brilliantly silly, right? One of the best scenes is when they're walking through the town and, and the plague hits, bring out your dead, and they're hitting the gong. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. And one guy comes out with a man on his shoulder who apparently he doesn't like. And he, and, and he said, here, can you take him? And he said, I'm, I'm not dead. I'm, I'm feeling all right. And he said, no, I, I can't take him. He's still alive. He said, well, I think I'm feeling better. I think I'm going to go for a walk now. No, no, you're going to be dead any moment. Can you, can you take him? This, this, this funny skit of like, no, I'm saying he's dead, but he's not really dead. Many people treat this passage like that. Well, Jesus says that they, they think that he's dead, but, or she's dead, but he's just, she's just sleeping. Well, these professional mourners would not have come for no reason. They, they know death. Trust me. The re, why are they included there? Because this is to solidify she was actually dead. All of these people are in the house. They know that she's, not, that she's dead. She's not sleeping. She's not mostly dead. She's all the way dead. Okay. <laughs> I, I love when I get a smile on stuff like that. Princess Bride reference. You can watch that one too. Um, she is not dead, only sleeping. I love Jesus' divine purview here. That in the realm of, of eternity, her death, which everyone else is crying out in fear toward, temporary it is just sleep nothing to be worried about jesus so calm and collected why are you making a commotion and weeping what's wrong with you people don't you know i'm here she's not dead she's just sleeping jesus teaches us how the believer should view death and so i would be remiss if we did not go to first thessalonians 4 Paul, as he often does, encourages the church who is wondering, when is the day of the Lord? Should we be afraid? Uh, what's what's going to happen? Where do we find our safety? Because of Jesus, we have a new view of death. Unlike anything else the world has ever seen. So picking up 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Speaking of those who die in the flesh, the Bible speaks about a first and a second death. All, everyone reaches the first death unless the Lord comes first. You don't want to reach the second death. Very bad. That you may not grieve as others who have no hope. There is a line drawn in the sand between believers who have hope in a risen Christ and those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. If Jesus died and rose again, we in him, if we die, we will rise again. Now, we're not going to get into eschatology here and timing and all this. So, it's so frustrating how often people miss the encouragement in this, this, this passage to try to base an entire theology on one verse. So, we're not going to go there, but I want you to see the encouragement. For, for this we declare to you by word from the Lord, and that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. No one knows the day or the hour, but what we're supposed to know is if you are in Christ, he's coming for you. How will we know? Have I already been left behind? No, there's going to be a great trumpet from the sky. You won't miss that. Then he, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Hear that. If you are in Christ, you are always his. If you die in Christ, you are always his. He is coming for you. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We are to view death differently than anyone else. Do you believe this? Jesus died and rose again. If your faith is in him, if you die, you will rise again and you will be with him forever. Encourage each other with this. We are to mourn with those who mourn, absolutely. But we are to not act like those who have no hope. And so this becomes very appropriate. Do not fear, only believe. Now Jairus doesn't have the benefit of First Thessalonians, doesn't have the benefit of Paul explaining doctrine to him. But he has the beauty of faith, trusting in him. And we, with all of the Scriptures at our disposal, everything that you hear, if you come here week after week, you hear this, and hopefully you're reading this at home, do you still struggle though? Do you struggle to not fear, to not be guided by fear? Does death still haunt you? Do the doubters and the skeptics and all the things that your eyes see, do they still betray you? Or do you believe? You believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. He's not just a teacher. He's the one who died and rose again. He's the one who's going to raise this girl up in two verses. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in Christ it is not death, it is just sleep? If you do, you know what a comfort that is and what an encouragement that is and why Paul tells them. Don't miss the point of that. Who cares when Jesus coming, is, is coming back? You should care as if he's coming back for you or not. If he is, come back tomorrow. Come back right now. Come back in 30 years. It doesn't matter. And that is the beauty of the encouragement of a resurrected Christ who resurrects a people for himself. And that's the encouragement to believers. But if you're not a believer, well, how do you respond? Verse 40, and they laughed at him. This is not just a giggle, but this is a continual ridicule. They mocked him, laughed in his face. For the believers, it's an encouragement. She's not dead, but sleeping. For the, for the skeptics, mockery. This man's a fool. Sleeping? They know enough death to know better. They know enough death to be, to be cynical. They know she's not sleeping in their sense. And they are so emotionally charged, wailing and, and screaming, that it turns into ridicule. This calamity has turned them into a frenzy. They're actively lacking, laughing at Jesus. Isn't this exactly what the world does? When we speak in faith, I trust in Christ. I will follow Him. I will obey Him. And the world laughs. You really believe that? You really believe a book written 2,000 years ago? You really believe a man rose from the dead? Do you really believe that just by faith you'll be saved? And we've never been mocked because you believe that? This is what the world does. This is what doubters do. Just like these mourners, their lives are full of death and pain and despair and they have no hope. We are to be able to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Because it is in Christ and not in our ability to see the end of the story. Jesus does what He should do. They laughed at Him and He put them all outside. Matthew says He told them, Go away! The master of all creation comes in as the master of the house and he sends them outside. And this is what Jesus does with those who mock him. You want to mock me and doubt me? 
it's fine, but go over there. You will not witness my power. You will not be privy to the miracles, to life rising again. They will see the girl walk, but they won't see his, his power. This is what Jesus does. He, he removes them from his sight and from his presence. You have no part with me. Go outside where you belong. And he turns them over to their, their hardened hearts. But he took the child's parents and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and they went in where the child was. Verse 41, taking her by the hand. Again, Jesus' tender care. This is, this is endearing language. As a father would take his daughter by the hand. And he says in Aramaic, Talithakum. And so, I don't know why Mark translates everything else, but doesn't translate this. But he is writing to a Greek-speaking audience in Rome. They would not be native Aramaic speakers. And this, this, it means little girl arise, but there's a sense of little lamb get up. This is very endearing, and maybe Mark included it because it's, it, it's, it's a loaded term. And there is beauty in the way that he, he speaks to her. Little girl, I say to you, arise. I love how this is a beautiful picture of resurrection in Christ, of being born again. The Father speaks to us, calls us by name, draws us to the Son. The Spirit breathes life into us. When we open our eyes, the first thing we see and know is Jesus. We have regenerated hearts that beat for the first time. We have eyes that truly see, ears that, that, that truly hear. And I love that last week and this, this week are shadows of the gospel. The imagery here of a God who knows you by name, who speaks and calls you to new life. And how does this girl respond? And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Mark loves immediately. Mark is a man of action from one thing to the next. But if he repeats it twice, he's saying that there's, there's no sputtering here. Jesus didn't have to say it three or four times. There was no lacking in the, the response. Immediately, she rises up and everyone is astonished. This is very emphatic in the Greek. She is, they are amazed with great amazement. You cannot get more amazed than they are right now. Because this little girl doesn't need time to recover. She's dead. And immediately she gets up and walks around. And they are undone. We serve a God of resurrection. By the word of his power, this little girl gets up and walks around. He raised this little girl. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And that would be enough. But even greater, same power that calls us to faith raised him from the dead after three days. Why the cross and the empty tomb are central to our message? Because it is true. And everything else depends on it. If he does not have power over death, then you should fear death. And you should fear what comes after it. But if he does... He is a God of resurrection. We are the people of resurrection. And we come to new life. And like the little girl in Christ, our eyes are open and we begin to walk for the first time. This is the gospel call. Do not fear, only believe. Believe and live. The gospel, yes, is forgiveness of sins, but don't forget that the gospel means new life. It means new creation. It means eternal life. When we call people to believe, so often we make it cold and, and, and judicial. This is alive and vibrant. And this woman, young woman, walks around the room. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Why, again, did he strictly charge that no one should know this? As we've seen before, he's on the Father's timeline, no one else's. It was, not her turn, it was not her time to die, but it was also not his time to die. Because if people knew, the plot would come before it was time. So don't tell anyone I'm coming here because of your faith. 
and he told them to give her something to eat. Why? Detail's not even necessary. But isn't it cool that Jesus cares about, he knows he's a, she's a 12-year-old. 12-year-olds eat like crazy. And give her something to eat, she's, she's hungry. But doesn't he do the same thing to us when we come to new life in him? Feed them. Give them my word. Give them something to feed their souls. And this is a great parallel. When he brings us to new life, he also calls us to eat. I am the bread of life. Feed on me. I give you rivers of living water. Drink the blood of my covenant. He cares for you physically and spiritually. And we don't know what happened with this little girl. But we know because of her father's faith, she becomes a daughter of faith. And hopefully the sight of Jesus and, and, and her resurrection and knowing that I was dead and this guy in front of me brought me to new life and he speaks to me and held my hand tenderly, hopefully the, fa- the faith of her father became her faith. But I just want to encourage you, praise the Lord that he listens to those who cry out to him in faith. Praise the Lord that he, that he hears our intercessions and our supplications for those we love. This should encourage us. Why even pray? Does God even care? Yes. As we saw in Isaiah 25 this morning, death does not have the the, the final say. I was going to read it, but... All right, sure, we'll read it. Um, The prophecies of Isaiah, looking forward, how does God encourage his, His people? 700 years before Christ, 2,700 years ago, Isaiah sees all the way into the future. He says, on this mountain, Mount Zion, his holy hill, where the heavenly Jerusalem will come down to earth. This is God's final word on death. On the mountain of the Lord of hosts, he will make for all his peoples a feast of rich food. He tells the little girl to eat, we will eat. Trust me. I'm looking forward to that heavenly feast. A feast of well-aged wine, amen, and rich food full of marrow and wine and well-refined, the good stuff. And he will swallow up on his mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And he will swallow up death forever, amen? And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. If that is not an allusion to the work of Christ, I don't know what is. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is why we don't fear death. We look forward to it. Because the first death, death doesn't matter. The second death. The eternal death and destruction that is apart from Christ will be swallowed up forever. And we rejoice in the coming of the Lord. So just quickly in conclusion, um, one of the commentators, I love how he summed this passage up. William Hendrickson said, His power cannot be fathomed, nor his compassion measured. His power cannot be fathomed, nor his compassion measured. At the same time, Jesus is almighty God, powerful compassionate and loving toward his sheep and his love for this little girl in responding to her father's face is just a glimpse of his love for us on the cross what he's willing to do for this man's faith he came to take on flesh to do for us that we might have life in him through faith Uh, i want to close with first corinthians 15 we have to go here Paul spent a whole chapter on it, the longest chapter in the book, Uh, so we should pay it some attention, and I think this is a good benediction which will lead us well into our prayer. So when Paul speaks about resurrection and the questions that the church in Corinth had, and what do we make of this, and what do we make of that, I love how he brings it all home in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, when your body Your flesh and blood puts on your new body, that which will not perish, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying as it is written. Hear this, brothers and sisters. Do not fear, only believe. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Thanks be to God. Our Father who has given us victory through the Son, confirmed it with the Spirit, all praise and glory and honor to you. Lord, encourage us. Encourage us when we fear death, when we fear disease, and we fear disappointment. We fear governments and political parties and politicians and all the other things we fear. Forgive us. The greatest enemy is death, and death has no more sting in you. In Jesus Christ, we have victory over death. Our suffering servant who tasted death for us, who took on our transgressions that we might be healed, that he might be a man of sorrows, He would take all the effects of the curse, all of our sin, every lie and hatred and lustful thought and wicked action, taking on Himself the full wrath of God poured out for our sins that we may rise to new life in Him. God, You are so amazing. Let us reflect on what we have in Christ. Let us rejoice in the coming day of the Lord. Let us rejoice that we are His forever. As we put our faith and hope in the person of Christ, fully God, fully man, and the work of Christ, perfect atonement, redemption, propitiation, mediation, justification, sanctification, glorification, all in Him. And it is in His name we pray. Amen.